I, um, I want to encourage you with a couple of things. One, because since you're encouraging me, um, one is that uh, I talked to uh, George, I guess it was the Friday after he spoke a couple of weeks ago, and George hadn't been here to teach in a few weeks, and uh, he just said, man, it is so exciting to be at Amen. He's like, there are just so many guys there. It's incredible. I said, I know. I said, you should come back. So he's going to come back. And uh, the other thing, the other thing is uh, just impressed today. I thought to myself, you know, today is, uh, we've got three problems going on uh, this morning as I was driving here this one. I said, number one, it, we were off last week. So are they going to get back in the rhythm? Are they going to be out of the rhythm and they're just not going to be there? Uh, two, usually as we kind of go into the spring, um, sometimes amen in the past has kind of trickled off. Guys have just kind of stopped staying in the rhythm and maybe getting outside more. Three, man, that was an exciting Grizzlies game last night, right? So some of us are up late. And, and as John Hammond said, and I'm going to try to exhibit right now some self-control in not talking about the game, because I would love to just have an open conversation about how awesome Memphis looked uh, last night. But we'll turn to God's Word, uh, because that's the reason we're here. And, brothers, there is so much that we need to look at this morning. Uh, in fact, as I, was, as I was driving in, I said, Lord, please help me get through it all, because uh, we do need to get out of here um, by 7.30. So let's go ahead and dive in. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Uh, we're going to just look at two verses there. We're going to be looking at self-control. I thought of that probably being a fourth reason you might not want to show up this morning. Is uh, Yeah, I don't really want to have anybody speak into my life about, about that thing. And, um, but it's important for us. It's important for us because as we look at what it means to be God's man, as we look at what it means uh, to be men as the way God created us to be, and certainly in this culture, um, being men who... who uh, who have biblical self-control is not actually what the world says men should be. The world says that eventually as men, you should be able to rise to the level of power, influence, and opportunity that you really ought to be able to kind of do. I mean, obviously you don't want to break laws and you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but you kind of want to be able to do whatever you want to do. And that is the problem, isn't it? The problem that's, and it's not just the world, it's our own hearts. The problem is this. It's our own desires. Our desires are, I don't want to be restricted in anything. If I enjoy something, if I find something pleasurable, if it's something that's meaningful for me, I don't want any boundaries with that. I just want to be able to, to, uh, to go ahead and, and indulge. And again, we go, ah, I don't want to be, I don't want to not be a gentleman. I don't want to not, I don't want to look ridiculous, but I don't, I don't want anybody to tell me, hey, here's a limit or here's, here's a boundary. Reminds me of what we see at the beginning of Ecclesiastes when the writer of Ecclesiastes was looking at, well, could I find happiness? Could I find contentment if, uh, without God? Is that possible with all the world has to offer? And it says in Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes are, um, says, I denied myself nothing my heart desired. <laughs> I denied myself nothing my heart desired. And again, that's often... Uh, the way the world wants to, to run, denying myself nothing my heart desires. If you deny it to me, then you're restricting my freedom. But it's not just, it's not just the world, brothers. You know this. <laughs> um, it's in our own hearts. Our own hearts, our own sinful hearts, our, our desire is, I don't, don't put any boundaries on me. 
So even as, even as we look at, at someone exhibiting this on the world stage, like Vladimir Putin, we have to admit, don't we, there's a little bit of Vladimir Putin in all of us. All of us have that desire to, if I want this, I ought to be able to get it. So in that context, I want us to, to look at what does it mean to have biblical self-control? What does it mean? What does God mean by this? What's his intent for us, and, and how do we get it? Before we read these two verses, which I know are very familiar, I want us to make sure we have the context, because the context is the reason that I chose these verses as opposed to all the other verses I listed on your page there, I chose these verses as our verses for study. The scriptural context in, in the whole book of Romans, verses 12, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, are kind of a hinge. There's a, there's a, it's, a, it's a turning point um, in what Paul is doing. It's a very, uh, as you know, because many of you study Romans, very well-constructed book. Chapters 1 through 8 are a, a very clear presentation of the gospel and what God does in salvation. So basically chapters 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, is a description of why everyone, whether you're moral, whether you're religious, everyone without Christ is guilty before God. And then picking up in chapter 3 of Romans 1, chapter 3 of Romans, verse 21, all the way through the end of chapter 8, uh, is a description of God working, what God did in order to justify us, sanctify us, bring about our adoption, what Christ did is doing in order that we might be saved. And then chapters 9, 10, and 11 in Romans have to do with, well, what about the Jewish people? What about the people in the Old Testament who were given uh, God's word first? What about them? How are they going to know Christ? How does that work? And Paul answers that question, very complicated chapters uh, to study, verses 9, 9, 10, and 11. And then in chapter 12, he begins the part that, that talks about, okay, how do we apply the gospel to our lives? What does it look like to put the gospel into action? And that carries on all the way through chapter 15, uh, verse, I guess, 13. And then at the very end, chapter, chapter 15, verse 13, and chapter 16 have to do with personal greetings that Paul has. So that's the whole big picture of Romans. And then here, Romans 12 begins this new section. Now, I want to just point out a few verses below the verses we're going to read. Look at verse, um, verse 3, Paul says of chapter 12. He says, For by, grace, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So there's, okay, here's an application of the gospel. Then look at verse 9. Verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Um, verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless them and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And then on in verse 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, verse 19, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Don't get revenge. Chapter 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. What does it mean to apply the gospel in, in uh, culture? What is that going to look like for us in the context of society? Um, verse 8, oh, no one anything except love for each other, and the one who is loved fulfills the law. So there's all these commandments, right? There's all these applications. But it begins with, it starts with these verses Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. Let's look at them together as I read them. Paul writes this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, 
by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Amen. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. There's so many places we could have gone to look at self-control. You can look at the top of your notes there. And I just listed just a few. I actually was like, I've got to leave space for you to write notes. But you see Galatians chapter 5 talking about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And it eventually gets to the, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. Proverbs chapter 25, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. 2 Timothy, when Paul is talking to Timothy about what it means to be God's man, he says, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. When, he talk, when Peter writes his epistle, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Paul's writing to Titus, he says, be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So many different places in which we could have looked at this. It's everywhere. You're going to find the call for us as followers of God to be self-controlled all over your Bible, and especially all over the New Testament. But there's some aspects here in chapter 12 that I think are, I mean, of Romans that are especially helpful for us in understanding and unpacking what that looks like. Now, just to be clear, and I put this in the notes there at the top, and I borrowed this uh, from a message Sandy Wilson did about 12 years ago, um, that the idea of self-control is not just simply a Christian idea in one sense. I mean, there's plenty in the world and in classical uh, philosophy that, is, that has valued self-control. But as you see there at the top, it, there's a very different approach to self-control when it comes to just a worldly, a, a philosophical, classical approach to, to self-control and a godly self-control. And you see the differences there as you look at that that little, uh, those little blocks up there, the classical approach, the source of good, the source of goodness, how you decide what is good in, in the world way is just what, what you intuit in your own heart, what you think. I think this is good. I think this is valuable. So that means it's, it must be good. Christian approach is, no, the source of good is God. <laughs> He's the one that decides what is good and what's not good. I don't decide. We don't vote on it. God decides the classical approach or the worldly approach um, is that life must be balanced. If I'm going to be in control, self-control, it means I have a balanced life. Right? Everything kind of fits together in the balance. No, as a Christians, what does it mean? It means that we have a Christ-centered life. We're not looking for balance. We're looking for Christ to be around everything which we orbit. There may be places that to the world might look out of balance because of our dedication to Christ. But we have a Christ-centered life. In the worldly approach, classical approach, actions are important. What, what your actions look like. You know, it doesn't matter kind of what you're thinking and thoughts. We just watch how you, how you apply it. Clearly, from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached, he made the big point. It's not just about your actions, but it's about your heart. It's about your motives. So self-control is not just about your actions, but what's actually going on in your heart. And then lastly, the goal of being a self-controlled man in the world is just that you look honorable. But the goal 
For God's man is the glory of God. And that sets us up perfectly for the very first thing that we see in Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 1. And that's this, there in your notes, that self-control begins with the mercies of God. Self-control begins with the mercies of God. He says, I appeal to you, therefore I appeal to you, brothers, therefore... So what is he referring to? He's referring to everything he said from, from chapters 1 through 11. <laughs> so he's gotten through chapters 1 through 8 talking about our salvation. He's talked about the situ- how, the, how salvation is going to be brought to the Jews. What is God doing that? Why, why does it look like they're not responding to the gospel? They're the ones that receive God's word. And then notice, very last verse of chapter 11, it says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory Forever. So there it is. Therefore, therefore, now I appeal to you, brothers. I'm pleading with you, brothers, by the mercies of God. So the source of self-control for us in our lives is God working. What has he done for us? That's the context of these verses is the salvation that's been brought to us. What are the mercies of God here? Well, here's something that's very important for us because I think a lot of times in the church we can get this wrong and this, this little, this, this slight misunderstanding of the mercies of God can really get us off, off course in, our, in our, um, our walk with the Lord. And that's this. You and I are not the center of God's mercies. It is true, it is true that when Christ went to the cross, he did so in love for us. You, when, when Christ went to the cross, it was a demonstration of God's love for us. That is true. That is not the ultimate reason Jesus went to the cross. And that's where we got to get right. The ultimate reason that Jesus went to the cross was for the glory of God. And the reason you and I are loved by God is for the glory of God. Now, I know some of us, sometimes we get that, and you're like, ah, I just like the part where he went to the cross because he loves me. That's true. But ultimately, and even better, he went to the cross in order to bring glory to the Father, in order to bring glory to God. And why that's better is that it keeps us from getting worried if we're still loved or if we're still saved or if the salvation is going to be enough for all the sins we've committed. Let me tell you, brothers, God is going to make sure this happens because his glory is at stake. (laughs) Not simply that his love for you is at stake. And I think that's important to recognize that the very center of this, and that's why at the end of, of chapter 11, Paul writes of God's glory. It's not just that he loves us. He does love us. We are not the center of the mercies. God's glory is the center. What are those mercies? I kind of mentioned them, but let's just think about them for a second. You can write some of these down. Here are the mercies of God. This is the source of it. (coughs) Excuse me. Right away in chapters 3 and 4 of Romans, it talks about our justification. Justification is that theological word that uh, that I I still remember. (laughs) I still remember my, my Bible teacher in high school. Great definition that he gave. Justification is that legal act whereby God, on the merits of Christ, declares the sinner sinless and treats us that way. How beautiful is that? Justification is the legal act whereby God, he's the one doing it, declares, this, on the merits of Christ, declares the sinner 
sinless and treats us that way. That's justification. Paul goes on in those chapters, uh, chapters one through eight. He goes on and he talks about our, uh, our, our union with Christ. Chapter six goes into this whole union with Christ because it's like, wow, every, t- every time sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. That's what God's word says. Isaiah talks about it. God has provided double for all our sins. Every time you sin, God's grace comes in and, and goes way beyond it, provides way more. So wherever our sin is great, God's grace is greater. So the question is asked at the beginning of Romans chapter 6. Well, do I keep on sinning so that grace might abound? Like if I'm going to get more grace? And of course, that's a ridiculous question. And Paul makes that point. No, by no means. He says, if you've been, if you uh, are united with Christ, you are now dead to sin and alive to Christ. And he goes on to talk about our mystical union with Christ. That's a mercy of God. I know some of us uh, love that song, In Christ Alone. And there's that great phrase, one with himself I cannot die. That's a, talk about the mystical union with Christ. You have been united with Christ. Or as, as Paul says, um, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the one who gave himself for me. If you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been united with Christ. That's a mercy of God. He goes on in those first chapters of Romans. He goes on to talk about our adoption. That you have been adopted into the family. You are sons of God. With the full rights and privileges of a son. You are co-heirs with Christ. That is a mercy of God. And then he goes on in chapter 8 and talks about how you've been given the Holy Spirit. And as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. This is your sanctification. Sanctification, and I like my, my again, my Bible teacher's uh, definition of this. Sanctification is that process, that process where the Holy Spirit inside of us is making us more and more like Jesus. And so these are the mercies of God, justification, union with Christ, adoption, sanctification, all this that God is working, these are the mercies of God, and these mercies are the very beginning of self-control. This is the basis of it. This is where it could happen. If self-control was up to you and me just working harder, it would never happen. You know that. We've tried it, right? All of us have tried that. All of us have tried to get self-control just doing it ourselves, just toughing it out, and we failed. The only way for us to to have biblical self-control is to base it on the mercies of God. So God's glory displayed in his love is the starting point for our self-control. You are dearly loved sons of God. And God has given you the power to exhibit self-control. Self-control begins with the mercies of God. Secondly, self-control is a decision to present yourself to God. A decision to present yourself to God. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. To present your bodies. This is an active thing. Now, we're going to talk about this a little bit later. Okay, what, what is it that God's doing? What is it that I'm doing? And we're going to, try to, we're going to work all those things out. Paul's saying, by the mercies of God, because he's worked in you, because you are a dearly loved son of God, now... You actively present your body to God. 
This is active. It's not passive. It's not you're just sitting back. God, do something. Figure it out. Please make self-control work in me. No, I'm going to present my body to the Lord. You know, with self-control issues that we've got, and I, I thought of some, some of you can all think of some, I'm sure, as well, but they kind of fall in the categories of our emotions, right? Maybe anger, self-control with our anger, um, self-control with how to uh, handle our emotions correctly, um, self-control with our sexuality, self-control with money and possessions and greed, self-control with with uh, accomplishments and self-accolades, self-control with food or drink, all these different areas that we can think of as self-control issues in our lives. And I think too often, uh, as, as Christian men, we have a tendency to focus on denial as the starting point for self-control and as the, as the kind of the focus of self-control. Right, I'm struggling with this particular issue of self-control, so what i got to do is just, i just got to focus on i got to stop doing that. That's going to be my focus. You know, we even get our accountability partners around. i just got to focus. On, i got to stop. I just, help me just stop and you know, talk to me about how many times uh, I failed this week, and, and I'll let you know, and well, I'll try to have less next week, and I'm just going to try to focus on, on shutting things down. I'm going to focus on... On, on stopping. The problem with that is it doesn't really fit what God has given us in here, here in Scripture for how this is to work, certainly not in these verses. The focus doesn't begin with just, i got to stop. The focus begins first, like we said, with the mercies of God. And secondly, here, is to be God's man, positive. It's not, just, it's not just to jump to, i got to stop doing this, but it's, it's okay, what i got to think about is, what does it mean for me to be, to be God's man? Positively present myself, present my life, present my money, present my sexuality, present whatever I do, eat, drink, whatever, to the glory of God. How do I present myself positively that way? Many of you know that for 27 years, I worked in student ministry. Any of you who are even considering volunteering or giving up whatever you're doing now to work in student ministry, it's the coolest ministry God has on the face of the planet, and you should do it. Um, it's incredible. I only left student ministry um, because um, Sandy Wilson at that time said, hey, we need you to do this other job, and we think Andrew Kiesling can do your job. I'm like, well, thanks, Sandy. Appreciate that. Uh, and uh, I didn't want to. I didn't. I didn't want to leave. I think it's incredible. Love working with students and love seeing what God does in the lives of students. But of course, one of the questions we often got from from uh, particularly young men in regards to their dating lives and things like that, as they tried to obey God, they'd ask. You know, the question when we talk about stuff was, "How far is too far?" Right? How far is too far? Todd, when you talk this week about dating, would you please talk about how far is too far? And I always would tell him. That's an awful question. <laughs> it's completely the wrong question. This is, this, is you, this is you focusing on self-denial. I said, think about how dumb this question is. I'm going to try to be nice about it. But think about how dumb this question is, how far is too far. What you're basically saying is, how far can I get away from God and still be a Christian? How far can I get away from, from honoring the Lord and it, I'm still within the boundaries? <laughs> 
What a, what a terrible question. That's, the, that's focusing on self-denial, not focusing on presenting yourself to God. I have a dear, I've, I've told you this before, a friend of mine, uh, Doug Bradbury, and for years did these outdoor wilderness trips with us uh, in student ministry and just taught us so much about the love of God and what it meant to, to experience as men and women his glory in our lives. And almost every time we would part ways, we would say goodbye. It probably happened today if I saw him. I haven't seen him in years. Lives up in Pennsylvania. He would look at me and he would say, Todd, you are a son of the king. Now go and live like one. And that's that positive focus. That's that's what he's saying. He's saying, Todd, the mercies of God have made you a son of the king. Now go present your whole life and live it like one. Don't, I mean, he, wasn't, he didn't say this verbally, but what he was saying, what he didn't say was, hey, don't, uh, don't see how far you can go and still kind of be considered a son of the king. <laughs> it wasn't the negative denial, it was the, the presenting. It was like, no, let me go present myself. So self-control is a decision to present yourself to God once you establish yourself in the mercies of God. Thirdly, we see in these verses that self-control involves sacrifice. It says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. A living sacrifice. This is going to cost us something. Again, let's make sure the order's right. Mercies of God, he has made you his son. He's made you sinless. He has given you the power through the indwelling Holy Spirit to to live out the reality of who you are in Christ. He has united us to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of that has been given to us by God. Now let us present ourselves to him, present our lives, present our sexuality, present our money, present our eating and drinking, present our emotions to the Lord. How do I give those things to the king as I do it? And in doing that, we realize as we're in this world, it's going to cost us something. Because in this life, to live as a child of the king means there's things around us in culture and even as it wars within our own heart, our own desires, our little, our little, the little Vladimir Putin in us that wants what we want, as that battle takes place, we recognize that it's going to cost us something. And I want to suggest to you, brothers, that is a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful thing. There's this really great story in 2 Samuel 24 where King David is... Uh, is on the run fighting battles, and he gets to the threshing floor of Aruna, this guy Aruna, and he, and, he, and he wants to make sacrifices to the Lord at that place. And once Aruna realizes, and, and David offers to pay for the threshing floor in order to, to, to offer sacrifices to God. And once Aruna realizes that David is the, is, that it's King David and who he is, Aruna says, now you don't have, you don't have to pay. You can, you, can, 
You can do this for free. And David says this amazing thing in 2 Samuel chapter, uh, chapter 24, verse 24. David says this, I will not offer to God that which costs me nothing. I will not offer to God that which cost me nothing. And of course, David isn't trying to appease some angry God. He's not trying to pay God back. David recognizes the glory of God. He recognizes how he has been loved. He recognizes what, what God, the mercies of God, and that elicits in him this desire like, no, if I'm going to give a gift, I want to give a gift of value. In the same way, if there's someone, a friend, a spouse, that you dearly, dearly love, doesn't it become your joy to do something extravagant, even if, it, even if it's you're like, wow, that really, that really stretches my checking account. That really stretches my efforts. But I, but I want to do it, it because I really love them. I don't want to offer to God that which costs me nothing. And of course, we see this even in the New Testament. Jesus says, if anyone's going to come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. Forever seeks to gain his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will gain it. Christ calls us to be living sacrifices. When Paul talks about it, even in, in relationships in marriage, this is so important for any of us in who are married or who would desire someday to be married. In Ephesians chapter 5, when it talks about the roles of men and women in marriage, it says to men, it gives us, the, it gives us a really tough job. It says, we've got to love our wives like Christ loved the church. Some of you heard me say this. I, I, I recognize that when I got married, I was a believer. When I got married, I thought, I get it, I get it. When a sacrifice is to be made, I'm supposed to make it. When a sacrifice appears in our marriage, I got it. Ephesians chapter 5, I got to step up. I'm the man, I make it. And then about 10 years into marriage, so that's 10 years too late. <laughs> I was studying this. I was actually studying from, for 1 Peter chapter 3 and studying the role of men and women in marriage. And I'm like, ooh, I got this wrong. I'm supposed to love my wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church. Christ gave himself for the church. Wait, Christ didn't wait until a, a sacrifice appeared. Christ actually sought out the sacrifice. Some of you are like, I wish you had not come today and heard that. <laughs> but to live that out in my relationship with Lynn doesn't mean, oh yeah, if a sacrifice appears, I need to make it. It actually means I am seeking to make sacrifices I'm looking for them. I'm trying to find them if I'm, if I'm doing it like I was told in Ephesians 5. If I'm really following my Savior, I'm looking for that opportunity to give her a love <laughs> that reflects my love of God means I don't want to give to Lynn that which costs me nothing because I'm not going to give to God that which costs me nothing. And what is that? What is it? Look, look what it says right here. It says that it's our, our spiritual worship. So in doing that, 
Whatever sacrifice I'm making as I live out the reality of being a son of the king, it is worship. That moment of sacrifice is worship. And that's another reason why I'm like, okay, I want to be like David. That, that, I don't want it to cost me nothing. You know, in our, um, I'm, I'm going to my, uh, in fact, I'm leaving uh, here in a few hours to go to Chattanooga. My, I only have one sibling, my brother. He's my best friend, and his oldest daughter is getting married uh, this weekend. And I'm excited about seeing that wedding. I just get to be an uncle. I don't have to officiate the wedding. But then the next week, I'm going out of town again to officiate a wedding, um, enjoy weddings. And uh, I think most men love this moment in a wedding. I know the women really love this moment in the wedding. And that moment is the vows, when they're facing each other and, uh, and, and they're committing to each other. And there's that moment when they're saying, oh, the guy says, I do. I take you. I do. A yes, this big moment of the yes to this woman. You know what makes that moment so awesome? It's because what's being said is, Yes to this woman. The yes is awesome because at the same time, that man is saying no to every other woman in the world. That's what makes the yes beautiful. The yes is beautiful because she's saying no to every other woman in the world. And that's why it's powerful. And so brothers, even I, I've thought about it, we could talk about a lot of things, but I I think in our society, in our, in our culture, that is an overemphasis on expression of our sexuality. Um, I would say this is a reality that whether you're single or whether you struggle with same-sex attraction or whether you're married, all of us have to exhibit biblical self-control in our sex lives. All of us. I think that's a, I think that's a misunderstanding sometime by... I think single Christian men and women, oh, when I'm married, well, men, single Christian men, when I'm married, I will get to do that as much as I want. I'm like, well, brother, let me talk to you a little bit about that. <laughs> <laughs> or the world's saying, well, if you don't let me marry someone of the same sex, if I'm denied that opportunity, then I'm being denied something. I have to exhibit self-control that you don't have to. I'm like, no, all of us. It doesn't matter your state. It doesn't matter if you're married, if you're single, if you're same-sex attracted. All of us have to exhibit biblical self-control and make sacrifices when it comes to that. And the sacrifice is to the Lord. Because the application, the, the call of husbands to lay down their lives for their wives applies to every aspect of the relationship with my wife, including our sex life. I am to love her and lay down my life for her, and i got to figure out exactly what that means. That does include a sacrifice. And I want, in all areas of my life, to worship the Lord by saying, I'm not going to offer to God that which costs me nothing. Self-control involves sacrifice. Fourthly, self-control requires godly discernment. Going on to verse 2, chapter 12, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So I'm supposed to discern the will of God. So self-control is going to require a godly discernment. How is that going to happen? It says right there in the verses, I got to, by the renewal of my mind. 
because I can't, I can't let the world's conformity, which is telling me, listen, freedom is, is not denying anything that your eyes desire, your heart desires. Anything you see and your heart desires, you got to be able to get it. That's freedom. To not have that is not freedom. It's not just the world, though, right? It's our, our hearts, too. <laughs> That's what I think the, the, the monks discovered in the Middle Ages. They were, they were looking for a place where they wouldn't be tempted by all the stuff in the world, right? All the desires that existed in the world. They wanted to get away and then live an ascetic life in order to, to, uh, to get away from all those temptations. And you know what they found? The temptations existed in solitude because they existed in their hearts. That's what God's word has told us. The desires that war within you. James, when he talks about the way the devil tempts us, <laughs> James says he tempts us by tapping into the desires in our hearts, our own evil desires. And so we've got to renew our mind. And how is that done? We've got to, we've got to know God's word. Turn with me to uh, um, 1 Corinthians, so just a few pages more in the uh, next uh, book of the Bible there after Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I love how um, Paul is addressing the Corinthian church in this, and some of you know Corinthian church is an absolute mess. Um, part of their problem was that they were like, oh, the grace of God is awesome and I'm free I'm free from all these restrictions. I don't have to live by the law anymore because Christ has set me free. Right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 12, we're going to read that. And, and uh, there was this phrase that the, some people in the Corinthian church were using, which was this, all things are lawful for me. I'm free in Christ. All things are lawful for me. So Paul picks up on this. Verse 12 of chapter 6, 1 Corinthians. All things are lawful for me. And then Paul says this, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. And Paul says, but I will not be dominated by anything. Another phrase they used in, uh, in the 1 Corinthian church. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And Paul says, and God will destroy both one and the other. And then he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. But Paul's point is this. He's saying, hey, listen you got to be thinking beyond just the one phrase or the one piece of Scripture you got. you got to know all of Scripture. you got to be renewing your mind. So yes, you and I are free in Christ. And some things are forbidden, but some things maybe aren't forbidden. Like some of the stuff they're talking about here, like food offered to idols and things like that. Some people in the church are like, no, you can't go to the temple and get that, buy that leftover meat that was offered to an idol. Um, because it was offered to an idol. That's just terrible. Other Christians are like, man, the idols are just, they're nothing. They're just, they're just rocks. And this is the very best meat I can possibly buy, and I'm buying it at a great price. And I don't care. It's not, it's not like it's satanic meat, right? And so there was a debate there. And Paul's point here is, hey, listen, you are free in Christ, but, but study your Bibles and, and be in the context of the church and renew your mind. And is this helpful? Is this helpful? Is this helpful? It's, we are blessed, most of us, probably all of us here, we are blessed to enjoy some great food in our lives. Some of us have visited other places and been in other contexts, 
And, uh, and it's not that, I'm not talking about culture problems, I'm just talking about the fact that the abundance and, the, and the, uh, the abundance of the food that we have and the variety of the food that we have, that we have access to, is amazing. And in one sense, there's nothing sinful or, or uh, you know, unsinful about food. It's just, it's just food. It's just food. But Paul here is saying, hey, don't be dominated by it. Just because you're free to enjoy, you know, certain foods and a glass of wine, okay, great, but don't be dominated by it. Now, all these things are in the context of what it means for us to be renewing our minds so that we're not being conformed to the pattern of the world. And so we're thinking about what is best. And I would commend all of you here, because this is a group of men. I, I told somebody this yesterday. I said, they were asking me why I enjoy teaching this. And I was giving a bunch of reasons why I just love being here. I said, one of them is, I'm pretty sure if you got up at whatever, in the fives, to show up here and be sitting here with your Bibles open and your pens ready to go, pretty sure you want to hear God's word. Like, you want to study. Like, nobody comes here, like, you know, just to hang. Right? You're here for a purpose. I said, I love you got to love teaching people that are, that are there for a purpose. So I commend you. You're doing this. You're doing what number four requires. You're developing godly discernment because you're studying the whole counsel of God. Because you're committing yourself. I'm going to know all of God's word. I'm going to understand all of it. I'm going to take notes. I'm going to sink deeply into it. Self-control requires godly discernment. And lastly, this morning, self-control is something God is working in you. Starts with the mercies of God. There's actions for us to take. And let's go back. I actually skipped over the first part of verse 2 to go to the part where it talks about discernment because I wanted to end with this. Self-control is something God is working in you. Notice that while the other words are active, the other verbs are active, notice that be transformed is passive. You don't transform yourselves. You don't transform yourselves. Renewing is active. Being transformed is passive. How do we, how do we put those two together? Well, we won't go there for the sake of time, but in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, right after uh, you know, Paul says, listen, I I'm appealing for unity, I'm appealing for sacrifice among you, and then he goes on, I want your attitude to be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who didn't think equality with God was something to be held on to, but made himself nothing. And he goes and talks about how he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And then he bursts out into, therefore God has exalted in him and given him a name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And then it says in verse 12, <laughs> So work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's what it says. And then right away, it says, for it's God who works in you to will and do his good pleasure. I'm just going to tell you right now, I don't know how, all that, I, I don't know how that works. I just know it's true. <laughs> I, I, none of us know how that works. But that's true. We are called to work out our own Salvation, We're to, to work out our own salvation means go live like a son of the king. And then the beauty of it is, and it's God who works in you. <laughs> so what's happening? God is allowing us to participate actively in our sanctification. Now be clear, God is the one doing it. 
God is the one doing it, but he's, but he's calling us to, to participate actively. But God is the one working. So even as the very beginning, the very top of your page there, uh, uh, the whole thing, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and self-control. That's a fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of Todd or the fruit of you. It's the fruit of the Spirit. As the Spirit works in you, God is going to be working this in you. He's going to be working self-control in you. God is working. I'm telling you, brothers, God is working in you. I even know this because you're here this morning, and I'm here this morning. I told someone, I walked in, I think it was John Hamm, said, oh, self-control. And I'm like, yeah. I was thinking, I wish I hadn't chosen this topic. Because now I'm going to have to deal with it in my own life. <laughs> God is working in Todd. And by you showing up here this morning, instead of going, ah, I don't want to hear that, God is working in you. He is bringing about the self-control that God wants to do in you. Now let me just say this. Before we wrap up, I want to say a word about addiction. Because I know some of you in here might be struggling with some, some addiction. I struggled with a bulimia addiction uh, for almost 12 years. And I got to a point where I hated it. I hated that this, this binge purge thing I was doing with food was in absolute control of my life. And I'll confess to you that I didn't want to tell anybody about it because this is in the 80s when it was happening. And at that point, it, was, it, was, uh, it seemed like that the only people that had eating disorders were girls. So not only was I ashamed at this addiction I had, but I was ashamed that basically I felt like I had a girl disease. So I sure as heck wasn't going to tell anybody. And it got to a point where I hated it and I pleaded with God to take it away. I didn't feel like I had any control or any ability for self-control. I know some of you in here may struggle with an addiction. And here's what I'd say to you. I would say, don't, don't leave here and going, yes, I just need to work harder. I would say, no. What God is calling you to do in his mercies, the, the next step, to, the way you could present your body is to go to someone, tell them, and say, hey, can you help me get help? That's the way to present your body to God. The only way I was able to overcome my addiction is finally when I walked into <laughs> a counseling center, sat down with a counselor and said, I have a bulimia addiction and I don't know what to do. And it was a journey. But that was me presenting my body to the Lord. I, I want God to do something about this. I don't know how to fix this. I can't stop it. God, would you please do something there? And I would say, if you're in here and you're hearing and you're struggling with an addiction, God is working, you know how I know? How I know? Because you're hearing what I just said. <laughs> and God wants you to hear that. God wants you to hear, you need to go tell someone, I need help. And that's, that's God's mercy in your life. Brothers, if we're gonna walk as, as men of God, we've gotta walk as men who who exhibit biblical self-control. And I would say to you what my friend Doug says, brothers, you are sons of the king. That's a fact. If you've given your life to Christ, that's a fact. You are sons of the king. Now, walk out those doors and live like one. Let me pray. Father, thank you for 
this great opportunity that we have together as brothers in Christ to sit under your word and to, to, to drink deeply of your mercies. Father, you know our individual lives and you know the areas where we struggle with exhibiting a Christ-centered, God-glorifying self-control. But thank you for bringing us here this morning. Thank you for reminding us of your mercies. Thank you for reminding us that you've given us the power to live like sons of God. And now, Father, by your grace, by your Holy Spirit, would you help us to live like that? We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thanks, brothers.